Turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. The title of the message this morning is these words, hold on. Now, what comes to your mind when you, when you hear that phrase, hold on? It, typically, we use those two words in two different ways. Sometimes when we say hold on, we mean wait. Like when I'm in line at Chick-fil-A and my three-year-old's yelling for her waffle fries, what do I say? I say, hold on, it's coming. Or maybe actually that might be my wife yelling to me, I can't remember. Um, or if you're on the phone, someone wants your attention, you say, hey, hey, hold on just a second. So sometimes it's a call for patience, which I don't know about you, but I, I really struggle with patience. But other times, when we say the word hold on, we mean keep going. It's a call for perseverance, to stick it out. I, I was thinking about this this week, and I was thinking back as a kid going tubing on the lake. Is that what y'all call that? Tubing? Have you guys ever done that before? Have you experienced that? That's really kind of a ridiculous thing to do. Like, don't get me wrong, it's a lot of fun, but it's really ridiculous. Think about how this probably started. Some guys were riding in a boat. It's always guys, isn't it? And one guy says, hey, why don't I get on this flimsy tube and tie it to the back of the boat while you drive about 50 miles an hour and I hold on for dear life? Like, it's not super smart. It's not the smartest thing I've ever done, but it is a ton of fun, and so I did it. But we also tell people, to hold on in difficult circumstances. We say things like, hey, hold on, help is on the way when someone's injured. Or when someone's battling an illness or maybe a difficult season in their life, we say, hold on, keep going, hang in there. Hold on is a call for perseverance. And this morning, we're going to see Jesus challenge a church to do that very thing, to hold on. And through their example, we're going to be challenged in the same way, to hold on. Because one of, the thing, one of the things we see all throughout the Bible and really all throughout Christian history is that followers of Jesus are often faced with difficult circumstances. Okay, rather than God keeping us, his people, free from all harm and trials, he usually preserves them right in the middle of it. <laughs> so here's our main point this morning. If you're going to get one thing, this is it. Jesus keeps his church while the church keeps his word. That's the message I want to bring you today as we continue our trek verse by verse through the revelation of Jesus. When we think about Revelation, the the last book of the Bible, most people often think about the latter half, right? They think about the beast and 666 and that great battle between Satan and the devil, which is exciting. We're going to get to that after the new year. But sometimes when people start reading through the book, they get a little disappointed to see that the book actually begins with seven letters to seven churches. And I won't tell anybody, but sometimes people might even skip over that part, right? They want to get to the the exciting stuff. But I want to make sure that we grasp the importance of these seven letters because these people were the original recipients of this revelation through John. So if we're going to understand anything about Revelation, we've got to understand the situation of these seven churches. You know, what people often do is jump straight from Revelation to modern day. They think, okay, this this must be about America. And, And so this political figure, he must be the Antichrist, right? In fact, if you want to write a bestseller and make a little money, all you have to do is find a random verse in Revelation and connect it to something happening in the news today, and boom, you're rich, and 
we'll pay off our debt. No, um, but it's, it's important when you study the Bible in general, and especially in a challenging book like Revelation, that we understand the original context of the book. Who were the first people to read this letter? Why did this letter get written to them? See, once we get that down, then we can make the modern-day application. Because as we established in the beginning, Revelation wasn't just written for these first-century churches. No, it was also written for us. That's the cool thing about the Bibles. God's Word is living and active. And even though it was written 2,000 years ago, it has so much to say for us today. And sometimes it feels more relevant than ever. These first-century churches were facing some similar challenges. They were dealing with challenges within so false teaching, spiritual apathy. And they were also dealing with challenges without. Pressure from a hostile culture to conform and even physical persecution from the Roman Empire. So these seven letters, they're, they're so important. They have so much to say to us today in October 2020 in Olathe, Kansas. And these letters are going to set the tone for the rest of the book as we see the central theme, which is this. Fear not. Jesus is on his throne. Let's look now at the sixth letter to the sixth church. That's Revelation chapter 3. And we're just going to walk through this this morning piece by piece, starting with the first two verses, verses 7 and 8. They say this. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. What's important to note about this particular letter is that there's no criticism or rebuke from Jesus. It's similar in that way to the church in Smyrna. Uh, rather than a call to repent, Philadelphia gets a call to persevere, to hold on. Because remember, Jesus keeps his church while the church keeps his word. And we see that main idea in three ways in this passage. Here's the first one we just saw in those first two verses. Number one, Christ opens. Jesus begins this letter like all the rest. By, by declaring his authority to the church, and he uses language initially that really makes sense to us. He says, hey, I'm the holy one. I'm the true one. We're like, yeah, we got that. But then he says this, this kind of weird phrase. He says, who has the key of David. What's up with that? Well, one of the things we're going to discover in this letter is that John uses a ton of references to the Old Testament in Revelation. So if we're going to understand a lot of the things we see here, we got to go back. we got to go back. Think with me about David. David, we know he was the most prominent king in the history of Israel, and God actually made a covenant with David, promising him that one of his descendants would sit on his throne and rule his people forever. But what happened? Son after son after son after son failed to honor God in their ruling, and it looked like there was no king. Until later in David's line comes the forever king, and his name is Jesus. So, so Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophecy to David. 
Jesus is the true and better David. He's the forever king of Israel and of all the world. And the key of David, that language is pulled straight from Isaiah chapter 22, where Isaiah prophesies about this guy named Elikim, telling him that he's going to have authority in the nation. So what this means, simply speaking, let's take all that and boil it down. It means this. Jesus is in charge. He has the key. He's got the keys. And specifically, he tells us what he opens, no one will shut. And what he shuts, no one will open. Jesus doesn't just have the key. He's guarding the door. So Jesus has absolute power, authority, and control over entrance to the kingdom of God. And, and this would have been especially significant for the church in Philadelphia. One of the biggest challenges we know early Christians faced was hostility, not just from the Romans, but also from the Jews. And because of a verse that we're going to see in a minute, we can safely assume that that was the case in Philadelphia. See, as Jews became followers of Jesus, they were often excommunicated from the synagogue. That was their place of worship. And they were no longer to go there. The door was literally shut in their face because of their allegiance to Jesus. So then imagine the significance of what Jesus is saying right here. He's saying, hey, even though you may have been kicked out of the synagogue, you are not kicked out of the kingdom of God because I have the key of David. And even though the Jewish people have shut the door in your face, they can't shut my door because what I open, no one will close. Jesus has authority over entrance to the kingdom of God. Jesus has the final say over who's in and who's out. And this is good news because unlike other religions and belief systems, this means getting into God's kingdom is not dependent on you. Every other religion in the world teaches that when you stand before God at the end of your life, only one thing will matter. Did you do enough? Were you good enough? Did you obey enough? Did you keep the rules enough? Are you worthy to enter God's kingdom? But see, Christianity is totally different. <laughs> the Bible teaches that when you stand before God at the end of your life, only one thing will matter. Did Jesus do enough? And the answer is a resounding yes. What Jesus did at the cross and at the empty tomb is enough. And that's good because we can never be good enough for God. D did you know that? We can never be good enough. We're sinners through and through. We've broken God's law. And as a result, we're fully deserving of his judgment. We're not worthy of entering the kingdom of God by our own merits. But Jesus is. And when we trust in him, his merits become ours. This is crazy. Think about this. On the cross, we switched places with Jesus. Jesus took our sinful record, and we got his perfect record. So that means when God sees us standing before him in judgment, he no longer sees our sin, but he sees us as his perfect son. So that means, if you're tracking with me, the only way, the only way someone can enter the kingdom of God is through a personal relationship with the doorman, Jesus Christ, by receiving his righteousness through faith. But if you believe that today as I do, that places you in a shrinking category of people in our society. 
Many people in American life and even some in the church today believe that there are many paths to God. They say, you know, most religions are basically the same. It's about love and, you know, being a good person. And we all pretty much worship the same God. So look, just kind of do your best. You do you. I'll do me. We're all going to get there together. But that belief is simply incompatible with the Bible and Christian teaching. doesn't make sense. If Jesus is one of many ways to God, then his death on the cross was for nothing. His resurrection, it's meaningless. And that would mean right here what we're doing, we're just wasting our time. Pack the chairs up, let's go. <laughs> I mean, so do you see why this is so important that we stand on this issue that Jesus is the only way as affirmed in John 14, 6? And we don't say that in an angry way or a prideful way like, ha ha, I'm right, you're wrong. <laughs> no, it's grace. We have nothing to boast in but Christ. As Martin Luther famously said, he said, we're just merely beggars telling other beggars where to find food. If Jesus really is the only way, then we have nothing else to boast in but Christ. And for us to hold out any other hope to the world would be just plain wrong. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. He is the door that grants entrance to the kingdom, and he is the shepherd that leads us through. As the old hymn we sang this morning says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Jesus has the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. That's our foundation as we hold on and persevere in the Christian life. Jesus keeps his church while the church keeps his word. Here's the second way we see that truth in this passage. Christ opens, and secondly, Christ keeps. Continue with me in, in verse 9. He says, Behold, I will make those... Of the synagogue of Satan who say that they're Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Here's our second clue that the church in Philadelphia was dealing with persecution from the Jewish people in the city. And Jesus has some pretty harsh words for these Jews. He says they're from the synagogue of Satan. <laughs> they're lying. They're not actually Jews. Jesus is affirming Something that Paul taught in Romans and Galatians. The Jewish people, they believed that they were the true people of God simply because of their ancestry, who they were kin to. But because they had rejected Jesus as the true Messiah, they had forfeited their place as the people of God. So, so Paul says in Romans 2, 28 and 29, he says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. According to Jesus and Paul, these are not true Jews because they have rejected Jesus and they've become an enemy of the gospel and the church. And as a result, Jesus says they're going to come and bow down before the church. That's pretty strong imagery. And it's pointing us to the idea that ultimately... 
all those who oppose the gospel will be defeated, and Jesus and his church will reign victorious. And we're going to see this again in Revelation because as Jesus came the first time as a helpless baby in a manger running from his life because Herod was trying to kill him, he's going to come very differently the second time. In fact, if you read the description, it's, it's, it's kind of shocking. Jesus is going to return as this mighty warrior in judgment, and he's going to defeat his enemies, and he won't lose. I love sports, and, and in the world of sports, there's this title that is like the ultimate honor. It's the title of undefeated. Like you didn't just win the championship. You couldn't even be beaten. There was no one else no other team who could take you down, and man, that's got to be a pretty good feeling. I wouldn't know because I played sports growing up. I was usually very well defeated by the end of the season. But Jesus Christ will remain undefeated. He will protect and preserve his church from whatever might stand in its path. He said even the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Uh, in seminary, one of the core classes that you're required to take is church history. And I don't know how you feel about history. Um, there's some interesting stuff we know. There's some not so interesting stuff. But one of the cool things you see through church history is that Jesus has kept his church through a lot of terrible stuff that has happened. There have been so many emperors and kings and world leaders who have attempted to wipe Christianity from the face of the earth, yet they couldn't do it. There have been worldwide calamities and wars and famines and pandemics and great suffering, yet the church keeps moving forward. There have also been scores of people who have attempted to destroy the church from within with false teachings and heresies and division, yet they couldn't do it. I mean, what was started with a Jewish carpenter and a small band of misfits and outcasts who were ultimately all put to death for their faith grew into a worldwide movement that cannot be stopped. Even today, we, we read about the church thriving in unexpected places like the country of Iran. Get this, uh, Open Doors Ministry. It's a ministry that uh, serves the persecuted church. They list Iran as the ninth most dangerous place in the world for a Christian to live. Christians in Iran are routinely jailed and house churches are broken up. But recent reports have showed something amazing happening. They're showing widespread conversion and revival to the point where they estimate today in Iran there are almost one million Christians. One million Christians. And that exact same thing is happening in other totalitarian and oppressive countries all around the world. It testifies to us that Jesus is unstoppable. He's undefeated. He will keep and preserve his church no matter how many enemies we may face. And this isn't going to stop in 2020. He's going to continue to do it till the day he comes back and preserves his church once and for all. Look, look with me now at verse 10. It says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. The church in Philadelphia understood something that many Christians lack today. Suffering is a non-negotiable part of what it means to follow Jesus. Let me say that again. 
Suffering is a non-negotiable part of what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus told his followers repeatedly that if they followed him, they would suffer. He never promised an easy life or a healthy life or a wealthy life. He never promised prosperity or a perfect marriage or perfect kids or your dream job or your dream home. He actually promised the opposite. He said that his way was the narrow way, the difficult way. He said that even the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And he said that we would be hated and experience immense suffering for him. <clears throat> the Philadelphian church endured that suffering that Jesus said would come, and they did so because they kept his word on patient endurance. This is another thing that we often misunderstand. Sometimes God removes us from pain and suffering completely. Sometimes he takes it away. Sometimes he heals, he fixes, and he solves all our problems. And the Bible says we should pray for those things. But what we see time and time again is that God typically does not take his people out of the storm. But rather, he gives them the grace to glorify him in the storm. And this is the pattern we see all throughout the Bible from Moses to Jeremiah to Daniel and especially in Jesus. Guys, they nailed him to a cross. Do you know the guy you're following? Like, do you know what this means for you? And we expect life to be comfortable. If Jesus was dealt the ultimate hand of suffering, why would we receive anything less? And this is not a bad thing. We think... When, when things happen, we, we woe is me and we cry and complain, but the Bible actually teaches us that suffering is actually a tool for our good and for God's glory. Suffering is the way we grow and we become like Christ, like God refining us through fire. Romans 5.3, it says this, it says, we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice <clears throat> knowing that suffering produces endurance. Suffering actually grows us. In the Philadelphian church, they knew this. They knew the word of God. They knew what he said about patient endurance. They kept it, and they held on to these truths and, and clung to them. I've learned in my own suffering that there are certain Bible verses that I never fully understood until I suffered. There's a certain sweetness to God's word, particularly in the Psalms, when you're in the middle of a trial and you're just desperate for God's help, it just becomes like a balm to your soul. And that's because most of the Bible was written to people who were hurting, who were afraid. That's why fear not is the most common command given in the whole Bible. And they knew this. This church kept God's word and Jesus said as a result he's going to keep them from the hour of trial that was coming. And we don't know exactly what this means here, but this was some sort of difficulty that was going to come in their lifetimes, and God was going to protect them from it. Many people also believe that this verse foreshadows the ultimate hour of trial, which is something called the tribulation. Now, I'm not going to spend time there today because we are going to get to that. But the tribulation, we know, is this intense period of suffering and judgment that is going to one day come on the world. And what we will see that even in that hour of trial, God is also going to keep his people and preserve them. Because that's his pattern. And it won't ever change. 
No matter how bad things get, no matter how crazy the world may seem, and it's pretty crazy, Jesus will preserve his church. And he continues to encourage them. Look at verse 11. He says, I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Jesus promised his disciples, he said, I will never leave you and forsake you. So he sent on the day of Pentecost, he sent the Holy Spirit to live inside of every believer. And one day he's going to return for his people. So what that means is we will never be alone in our suffering. We're never alone. There's no such thing as true loneliness for a Christian, even though we feel it sometimes. So we have to remind ourselves, and that's what he does here. He reminds them, hold on, I'm coming. I'm coming soon. And he says, hold on to your crown in such a way that no one may seize it. And that metaphor, it would have made a lot of sense for this church as their city hosted athletic games. So he's talking about the wreath, the victor's wreath that you would get placed on your head if you won the games Paul uses this same imagery in 1 Corinthians 9. He says we should live in such a way as to earn an imperishable wreath and then cling to it throughout our lives knowing we have the victory in Christ. We have the victory and we live in light of that. Jesus keeps his church while the church keeps his word. Here's the third and last way we see that in this passage. Christ opens, Christ keeps, and Christ seals. Look at verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. This imagery here is amazing. Look at what Jesus promises those in Christ he says, you will be a pillar in the temple of my God. What does he mean by that, by pillar? These early believers, they would have understood the significance of pillars from the presence, from the, sorry, from the many temples and places of worship in their day. A pillar symbolized strength and permanence. And Jesus was encouraging those who were being kicked out of the synagogue, that they will never be removed from the presence of God. They will remain there strong like a pillar. And then he says, I will write my name on you. Another picture of permanence and identity. I think about the movie Toy Story. You guys seen it? Main character, Woody. What does he have written on the bottom of his boot? He has the name Andy, right? That was his kid. That was the one who took care of him and played with him, who owned him. And Woody was so proud to have Andy's name marking him because it meant he belonged. He had a place. Friends, if you are in Christ, God has written his name on you. He has marked you as his son or daughter, and that will not change. These images, they speak to this idea that we're sealed in Christ. I mean, what we have in him, our relationship with him, it's permanent. It's unchanging. Reminded me of a, a few months ago, my wife and I visited the Wo World War I Memorial in downtown Kansas City. I'm sure most of you have been there. It's got to be one of the coolest places in Kansas City. And we got a chance to stand on top of the monument and look out over the city and 
We thought about the men and women who are memorialized at that place for their sacrifice for us. And just the stature and design of the memorial, it's staggering. It's, it's got beautiful stone. It's high and exalted on this hill. It just feels and looks strong and permanent, and it's meant to be that way. It's meant to serve as a lasting reminder, and it seals in time and place the, the sacrifice of our nation's soldiers. This is the kind of picture Jesus is painting here for us. We are sealed in the kingdom of God forever. Our place is permanent and final. It cannot be changed or undone. We are set like a pillar. We are marked by his very name. So right now, if you trust in Jesus, you are sealed in Christ. And one day, that relationship is going to be fully realized when you see him face to face. And you will be in his kingdom forever. Man, I pray for that day. But until then, the message to us is the same message to the Philadelphian church. Hold on. Hold on. Keep going. Persevere until the end. When there's a global pandemic, hold on. When our nation seems to be more divided than ever before, hold on. If you're dealing with cancer or chronic pain or another health ailment, hold on. If you're struggling with finances or a job transition, hold on. If you're caring for a sick or struggling family member, hold on. If you're battling depression or anxiety, hold on. If your family feels like it's falling apart, hold on. Whatever comes our way, hold on. See, this is not the end. Things will get better if we just hold on. Because here's what we find. Here's the good news. While we struggle to hold on to Jesus, he holds on to us. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Do you see that? His ability to hold on to you is not dependent on you. It's not dependent on how strong your grip is or how good you are. Because if it were, he would have dropped me a long time ago. But his ability to hold on to us is not dependent on us. It's dependent on his faithfulness, and that will never change. So, friends, hold on to this truth. Jesus is holding you right now. And he won't ever let go. He opens the way for you to have a relationship with him. He keeps you safe and secure despite what life may bring. And he seals you for all eternity in his perfect kingdom. That's what we had to remind ourselves. Jesus keeps his church while the church keeps his word. So as every letter ends, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray.